like to invite you to a soul level encounter. Music has an incredible ability to proclaim the soul's language beyond what mere words can speak. That's what we seek as we invite our guests to share their song of the soul. You will hear the music that has charted the steps of their spiritual journey, that has provided a touchstone in the soul's dark night and sung the heart's awe and joy when come to the light. Over the next hour, you will be a witness and companion to our guest's spiritual path and sacred testimony. Welcome to Song of the Soul. After an interlude last week where we checked in with Charlie King, we're back this week for part three, the final installment of our series related to Pete Seeger and the seeds of music he planted everywhere. Today we'll be talking to and hearing music from four people. We'll end with his sister, Peggy Seeger, who has her own extensive folk music pedigree. And we'll get there after interviews with Jane Sapp and Lucy Murphy. But first, we'll start out with an Albany, New York music treasure, Ruth Pelham, founder of Music Mobile, joining us now by phone from Albany. Hey, Ruth, thank you so much for joining me for Song of the Soul. I'm delighted to be on your show, Mark. This is great. I wish we could have Pete here with us, don't you? He's with us. I think he's all over the place. But yes, I know what you mean. And he would be singing away and chatting because that's Pete. I almost got around to interviewing him right near the end of his life because Peter Blood has been a friend of mine for 35 years or something like that. And he was going to connect us up, but Pete was just doing so poorly the last year. To even ask for an extra 10 minutes from him would have been too much. When's the last time you visited with Pete? The last time I saw Pete was when he was doing a concert down in the Beacon area, Beacon, New York. I live in Albany, and it was during intermission, and I went back to see him because we've known each other for years. I knew he wasn't well, and this thought just went through me that I just wanted to look at Pete, just look at him in his eyes. So I said, Pete, let's just look at each other. And we just looked at each other for maybe 10 seconds, and it was like seeing a blue sky and a sunset. I didn't even realize what his eyes truly looked at, because I never looked at his eyes that long, but it was just magnificent. It was just soulful and gentle and intimate, and I just hold that image in my mind. He's much taller than I am. I'm about five feet, and you know how tall Pete was, so if I looked straight on, I would see his chest. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not a bad thing to see. Not a bad thing. When we perform together, we are just a funny duo because he's so tall and I'm so short. And it was just kind of endearing like that. <laughs> and so when did you first connect up with Pete? How long was he influencing your life? Well, I grew up on Pete and Malvina Reynolds and Woody Guthrie. My parents were very progressive and just Paul Robeson and that music of social justice was always playing in our house and we would sing. But I actually met Pete 
back in the early 80s at the People's Music Network National Conference. People's Music Network is a wonderful grassroots organization of songwriters, activists, song leaders, and people that love progressive music. And we have what's called the Round Robin that goes on from about 7 o'clock at night. It went on till about 4 o'clock in the morning those days when a lot of us were younger. I went on at about 3 o'clock in the morning and sang my song, Look to the People, which I had just written a few days before that. Pete stood up. Everybody stood up. The energy in the room was just like electric lights going on, bright lights, sunlight. And Pete came up to me afterward, and that is when we bonded. So I've known Pete those years, and he, through the years, has done benefit concerts with me for my organization, Music Mobile. And we've seen each other through the years and talked on the phone. And, of course, I, like all of us, just adore him and just yearn for his wisdom to be echoing through the world right now because we really need him. So you performed with him for the fundraisers. Were there other times when you got up on stage with him, too? Yeah, actually, he did several concerts in Saratoga, and we shared that concert, and he was doing a concert up in Potsdam, New York, and invited me to come and be a guest artist with him, and there was a time in Florida when he was performing at a stadium, and I performed with him, which was always a delight, and one of the things about Pete is his generosity in terms of always, always pushing us forward, us meaning songwriters and performers. He wanted us to have the spotlight and he would just physically move back and say, no, you sing it, you lead it, you lead it. And it was touching because a lot of people, a lot of us are not like that much as we try to be that most of the time. But Pete, it was just the most natural thing for him to be utterly generous in that way. I'm just so grateful to him for his sensitivity and genuine appreciation of my songs and my song leading. It was just thrilling to sing with him, not only because, you know, he's Pete Seeger, but especially because of who Pete is and the friendship we had. One of the things that is notable in some of your music is what are called zipper songs. You know, you can kind of do the same song. A zipper song is easy because you just replace a word or two and you repeat the same tune and words so people can learn it quickly. Was that a very specific influence that Pete had on you? Would you have been doing zipper songs if it hadn't been for Pete Seeger? I'll tell you, I can't imagine me not doing zipper songs they just spill out of me. And the reason I do them is probably because I grew up on them, not just Pete's, but I remember driving in the car with my mom and dad and my sister Dee, and we were just always singing songs where you would fill in a line or fill in a word. And actually, over the years in my teaching with young people, zipper songs have been a really powerful way of involving people who sometimes don't speak up, the ones that kind of get lost who are shy. So I, as a child, sometimes was shy, and it was just great to be able to be in the safety of a song and have to come up with, you know, like a song like, There Was a Man Lived in the Moon, in the Moon, in the Moon, and his name was Aiken Drum, and his hair was made of spaghetti, and his nose was made of cat, I mean, like, I've changed it some to there was a woman who lived in the moon. I mean, some of the sexism in songs, so many of us change, you know, as times change. But yeah, I grew up with those kinds of songs, and I love people singing along with me. And that's part of my gift and my 
purpose is the unity that comes about when people not only sing together, but have a very special part in writing the song, which zipper songs lend themselves to. As a matter of fact, sometimes when I'm doing a zipper song, like my song, Look to the People, we're going to look to the people for courage in the hard times coming ahead. Going to sing and shout, going to work it out in the hard times coming ahead. With people's courage, we can make it. And then, of course, the zipper is going to look to the people for friendship, for voting, for whatever. And what I often do when I'm doing a concert is have everybody sing their own word at the same time. So everybody is contributing to it, and it's real fun. Everybody's kind of listening to each other, and it's a way of involving everybody. And Pete was so much about that. His songs, so many of them, really compel us to do something. My song, Turning of the World, is very much like that. Let us sing this song for the turning of the world that we may turn as one. With every voice, every song, we'll move this world along and feel the echo of our turning. There's so much we, us, together, and Pete was about that. It was saying we can do this together, we must do this together, and each one of us has the power and the gift in us to make a difference, a lasting difference. And when you put all of our actions together, oh my, you get power. You get change. You get impact. I've gotten that a lot from Pete, you know, his hopefulness and his insistence that people do have power. And there's so much power in your music, Ruth. And folks, we're going to listen to Ruth Pelham's song right now, Turning of the World. And it's got a very special place in my heart because I use her song, sung by a local musician, as the theme music for the Spirit in Action program, which I do weekly. So Ruth has been traveling with me ever since the early days of Norton Spirit Radio. Ruth, it's so wonderful to see Pete's seeds growing in you and in so many other people. We've got an entire a world-covering forest of that which has grown out of Pete Seeger's plantings of song. And it's so wonderful to see it flourishing with you and see you passing on the seeds. Thank you for doing that work, and thank you for joining me for Song of the Soul. Mark, thank you so much for all that you do. You are planting seeds, and we are all grateful, grateful for your long-term effort and gift to us. Thanks so much, Mark. Good talking to you. We'll find a link to Ruth Pelham on NordenSpiritRadio.org. This is her song, Turning of the World, to remember Pete Seeger. Of our turn 
of our healing. With every voice, with every song, oh, we will move this world along. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along. And our lives will feel the echo of our Every song we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo of our dreaming. With every voice, with every song, oh, we will move this world along. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along. And our lives will feel the echo of our dreaming. Let us sing this song for the loving of the world, that we may love as one. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along. And our lives will feel the echo of our loving. With every voice, with every song, oh, we will move this world along. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along. And our lives will feel the echo of our our dreaming and our lives will feel the echo of our healing and our lives will feel the echo of our turning Turning of the World Great Visit with Ruth Pelham for our third Song of the Soul on the many generations of music planted and nurtured by Pete Seeger. We'll go right to the second of our four guests today, Lucy Murphy, a cultural warrior for the movement over in Washington, D.C., where Lucy Murphy joins us by phone. Lucy, I'm really excited to have you join me today for Song of the Soul. Wow. Song of the Soul. Not of the mind or the heart. Yeah, Song of the Soul. Well, of course, it's patterned after the Chris Williamson song, which is the theme song for my show. Ah. I've known that song for so many decades and inspirational to me. I'll have to listen to it again. You've been so involved with music and certainly with Pete Seeger for many years. When did you first encounter him? I think I first encountered him at a Clearwater Festival Billy Vanover and Livia Drapkin, a performing couple, befriended me when I was part of a performing couple here in D.C. at the Folklore Society of Greater Washington, and they said, oh, you should come up to the Clearwater. And so it seems like we were put on the program as Lucy and Vigo, 
and I met Pete and Toshi at that time, and then the students at Antioch Law School, which is now University of the District of Columbia Law School, but at that time, in the late 70s, they were supporting different progressive causes, and there was a group in the law school supporting the Stearns strikers, the Stearns miners in Stearns, Kentucky, and they put together a concert with Pete Seeger, Hazel Dickens, Ralph Rinsler, and me at the Lisner Auditorium, so I got to uh, spend some more time with Pete. And then we were on the Sing Out Board of Directors in the 80s. That's sort of my, part of my experience. And so for that, you were performing as what? Lucy and Vigo was a short-lived experience in the 70s. And so for the, the rest of at Lisner, uh, when I performed with Hazel Dickens, and not with them, but on the same stage with Pete Seeger, Hazel Dickens, and Ralph Rensler, that was Lucy Murphy. And I was basically leading the audience in singing, which is something that Pete Seeger also does. I noticed your Lucy is spelled differently than other people's Lucy's, L-U-C-I. My birth name is Lucille. I'm named for a favorite aunt, aunt by marriage, my father's brother's wife. So I got her name, and I was called Lucille all through elementary school, but then I got a volunteer job at a community organization when I was about 12 years old, and uh, I worked in the office, basically stuffing envelopes and, you know, things that they can trust uh, 12-year-olds to do. And another volunteer in the office who was a Catholic seminarian decided I should have a saint's name. So he started calling me Lucy. So you attend in the saintly direction? Uh, well, I like the meaning of Lucy, which means light. I like to think that I cast light on situations so that people can see them better. I love it. And you do it through your singing as well. And of course, you have this sing-along aspect to you. Do you often perform with the D.C. Labor Course? Yes, yes. I'm probably one of their most regular members. And how big a group is this? There are 40 people on the roster, but I would say... 10 to 20 will show up for a given performance. I think we had 14 people this past Sunday. We were invited to sing at a very progressive church here in Washington, Westminster Presbyterian Church, which is also known as the Jazz Church in D.C. So we showed up for that. And, of course, showing up for the Great Labor Arts Exchange, which starts today. I'm speaking to you on June 22nd. And uh, the Great Labor Arts Exchange is also an institution that Pete Seeger supported. And actually where he heard me sing, Ain't You Got a Right to the Tree of Life. And what's your history with that song? I first heard it on an early album that Bernice Johnson Reagan performed. It was before Sweet Honey in the Rock. She made an album when she was in Georgia, and the producer of that album became a pastor here in Washington, D.C., and we hit it off, and he said, you know, I have an early recording that I think you would enjoy. 
and he gave me a copy of the record, and I heard that song, and then I learned that it was originally from the Sea Island people off the coast of Georgia and South Carolina. And then when I later met Guy Carawan, who collected the song and put it on, on his album and shared it with Bernice, he said that I sang it closer to the way the people sang it in Georgia and South Carolina. And you told me that when you, you sang it that Pete Seeger transcribed it or something? Was this not transcribed otherwise? No, Pete was good at that. I mean, he was a very accomplished musical person. He had a solid theoretical background, and he wrote it out for my singing. And it was put in Sing Out magazine. It was published in Sing Out magazine the way he wrote it out so that more people could pick it up and enjoy it. You know, Sing Out magazine still exists, but how far back will we have to go to the back issues to find the transcription? They have an archive of all the songs. And I think you can just go to their website. I think they stopped publishing in uh, 2014. But the website is there and it's searchable. We're going to have you share this, and Lucy, we're going to get you back for Song of the Soul and listen to a lot more of your music, assuming you're willing. But in the meantime, folks, we're going to listen to Lucy Murphy. Lucy is L-U-C-I Murphy. This song is Ain't You Got a Right to the Tree of Life. She's leading the D.C. Labor Chorus. This was a, a function, the Great Labor Arts Exchange Joe Hill Award. Here's Lucy Murphy, Ain't You Got a Right.
Ain't You Got a Right to the Tree of Life, Lucy Murphy leading the D.C. Labor Chorus, the kind of group singing that Pete Seeger inspired so widely and which he'd be so gratified to hear and see. This is Song of the Soul with the third installment of musicians remembering Pete Seeger in the way he lives on through their music. It is a Northern Spirit Radio production website, northernspiritradio.org, with links to all our guests, more info about them, and many other bits of information, including a list of the 30-plus stations that broadcast our shows. A special shout-out to WIDELP in Madison, Wisconsin. The full-time work of Norton Spirit Radio is only possible because you click Donate when you visit our website. But the same is true for WIDE and all the other stations nationwide carrying this crucial alternative voice, news, and music. Step up and contribute from your hands and wallet to keep the people's voice strong. So, we've had two Pete-nurtured artists so far, two more to go. We'll end with Pete's sister, Peggy, but first, I'm excited to welcome Jane Sapp. She's got many credits to her name, including that of helping found the Black Belt Folk Roots Festival in Alabama. Jane Sapp joins us today by phone. Jane, thank you so much for joining me for Song of the Soul. Thanks for having me. There's so many people who were touched by the life and the music of Pete Seeger. When did your connection with Pete start? I met Pete in 1977 in Chicago, and we were both singing at this labor union concert or something. But anyway, we were sort of sharing the bill along with several other people. But that was my first time meeting him, and I was very impressed. I remember him doing the sound check, and of course I remember Toshi quite well too because she was there really managing everything. Pete was just, he was so generous with his time and talking with me and, you know, making an effort to get to know me, and he told me afterwards how much he enjoyed my music, and we subsequently did other performances together. Had you been affected by his music at all growing up? I mean, where did your music tradition come from, and when did it intersect with the kind of music that Pete was doing? Well, I grew up in Odessa, Georgia. Of course, my music was primarily impacted by the black church. I was a musician in the church and had a church choir, several church choirs, and so that music is probably the strongest influence for me. And so when did our paths cross? You know, of course, during the time that I lived in Augusta, there was very segregated. Jim Crow was the law of the land. And so we all kind of lived in our two worlds in the South, black community and then, you know, the white community. And our paths didn't cross very much. But when I went off to college, I went to college in Kansas, and it was there that I first heard and came in contact with the whole sort of folk music movement. So I was, you know, introduced to Bob Dylan's music and, you know, others. And I guess after that, because after I left college, I went back to the South, and I didn't really cross paths, so to speak, with the music in a real way until I went to work at Highlander in, what was that, 1982. 
Highlander Folk School started in the 30s, and they did a lot of work with labor unions, and so I became familiar with Pete Seeger's music at that time, and through various other people who came to the Highlander Center for workshops. And culture and music was very important in the organizing work of Highlander, and so because this was an organization, an institution whose workshops were integrated, which was kind of unusual in the South, black and white people had the opportunity to come together to not only share their stories around the struggle and to share strategies, but also to share cultures. And so there was dance and song, and I got to know even more so folk music. And, you know, other musicians that were also writing songs of struggle and justice. And I note that you were one of the founders of the Black Folk Roots Festival in Alabama back in 1975. Is your primary work as a musician or is it as an organizer or is it as an organizer musician? (laughs) Well, I think now I call myself a cultural worker. And it sort of embraces all of that so that my work in community has included doing festivals, uh, creating a museum, which I did in South Carolina, creating workshops and opportunities for people to create music, doing folk life studies, which was you know, a way to get people in communities to begin to tell their stories and to share their stories. Also, the folk life studies that I did were always participatory in the sense that the community participated in getting to know itself, you know, getting to know their history, getting to know their cultural traditions and musical traditions, crafts, quilts, and basket weaving, and, and many things, food traditions. So I've kind of been a musician who really wants to live and be in a community and be with that community where that community is, but also be a kind of a source of reflecting back to the community what its strengths are. I always say that the work that I do in terms of organizing is that the good news about my work is that I get to focus on what people have rather than what they don't have. And so what they have are their songs and stories and histories and dance and faith and beliefs and values. I get to focus on that and I get to lift that up to communities as a source of strength and resiliency. Which makes you very much like Pete Seeger was. I mean, he may work with a different subset of the population, although he worked very widely. But it sounds like that same kind of organization, cultural creation, and bring people together. He's known especially for getting people singing together. And I have a feeling that your voice is so strong and so distinctive that you perhaps are less of a leader. You tend to shine when you sing. <laughs> I love to sing. This is my favorite Pete Seeger story. I always had groups, you know, it was either a a chorus or an ensemble or some kind of singing group. And I didn't necessarily sing solos. Of course, I studied music in college and I had, you know, I sang solos. But my preferred way of interacting with performances by working with groups and, you know, writing songs, having groups. And 
So in the 70s, kind of in the early 70s, I found myself without a group. And when I met Pete, again, you know, I had been invited to come and sing. I was in Chicago, and I was, again, singing by myself. It wasn't a lot of fun for me. So we got another concert that we did in Chicago. I can't remember what year it was. But anyway, backstage, Pete and I were talking, and, and I said to him, then I felt like this would probably be my last performance, especially, you know, as a solo performer, because it just wasn't a lot of fun for me to sing by myself. And so I talked about how much I loved choruses and, you know, and coming out of the black church tradition of congregational singing and call and response and just kind of that kind of interacting, you know, with the music and with song. And so, you know, he sort of looked at me. I sort of figured it out myself, but, you know, he said, oh, well, why don't you just make the audience your choir? And I said, (laughs) ding, ding, ding. (laughs) I mean, I was like, yeah, of course. Once I sort of got mindset, so it was like being back in the church or being back with my groups and just thinking about how I would lead people in song. So I just, I did that. And as I said, the rest is history. And I then continued to sing and perform. But Pete's words about make the audience your choir. So I think of that always. You know, I love getting people like Pete. I love getting people to sing along with me. So he was very, very influential in that sense. And another thing that I liked about performing with Pete, and that was that we sort of shared this, we're not performers, you know. We come into the community to sing. We don't want to just sing. We want to get to know the people, what some of their issues are, you know, what some of their struggles are, and anything else that, you know, that people could could share with us so that, to me, that made the concert richer because you weren't singing to strangers. You know, you were singing to people that you had gotten to know over dinner or at some small event going on in the community that you could attend. And, And Pete was very much like that. It's not a concert. I'm not singing to strangers. You know, I'm singing to my neighbors, and I'm singing with my neighbors and my friends then why don't you do some sharing of that music right now? Which would you like to share, some song that was influenced by your connection with Pete? Well, I chose Moving On as a song to use because my strongest memory of Pete is he was always so hopeful and always giving hope and always wanting to remind us to hang in there together, that if we could just see ourselves as part of the same community, that we would be so much more powerful together. So moving on reminds me of the spirit of Pete, who would say that, you know, keep moving on and keep singing on, keep being together, keep working together. And that's why I chose this song. It's sort of the spirit of Pete. Well, let's share some more of that spirit of Pete Seeger. We're actually speaking with Jane Sapp, who's one of the many, many people influenced. I have a feeling that Pete had many thousands of close personal friends. It's the way he... Yes. I I think he just got into people's hearts that way. 
She's going to share her song, Moving On. Again, Jane Sapp, you'll have a link on Northern Spirit Radio. You can get a hold of the album this is from. It's title track, Moving On, on KenWhiteley.com. There's a store where you can purchase this 2005 recording, Moving On, and a number of other good songs on there. Thank you so much for joining me, Jane. Oh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. It's always good to talk about Pete. <laughs> so here it is, Jane Sapp, Moving On.
Moving On by Jane Sapp. Find the link on nordenspiritradio.org. Such wonderful energy for part three of our Meander Through the Garden of Music, tended by Pete Seeger. We've got one more artist to visit with, Pete's little sister, Peggy. I've had Peggy Seeger share her Song of the Soul years ago, although this time we have to travel across the ocean to England to find Peggy. Fortunately, not so hard to do by phone. Peggy, it's great to have you back again for Song of the Soul. Oh, hello, Mark. Hello, hello, hello. You're over in England at the moment. How much of the year do you spend there? I live here. All the time? But you travel in the U.S. fair amount, too, when you're touring and such. No, I've, I'm not touring in the United States anymore. I live in Britain. I'm actually a British subject over here, and I'm not going to be doing any more touring in America. It's all been in England. Is this wishful thinking on your part that you lived over here? <laughs> you maybe have been following the election even from a distance. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's like following the circus. <laughs> No, I um I moved back in 2010. I lived in the States for 16 years, so you're forgiven for thinking I might have lived there, stayed there. I brought my family up over here. I grew up here from age 24 to 54. So I'm English. I'm virtually English. And actually, I knew that. When I interviewed you back in 2010, we discussed a bit of that. Of course, you had your husband, Ewan, who was Scottish, was he, or is he English? I don't, don't recall, well, actually. Well, his family was Scottish, and he spoke pure Scots until he went to school in Salford. He was born in Salford, but he liked to think of himself as a Scotsman. He really felt a closeness to Scotland that was almost eerie, but he was, he was English, born in, born in Salford which is um, Manchester. Well, you grew up as the half-sister of Pete Seeger. Uh, he's 15 years older than you, so he's probably gone from the house by the time that you're conscious of these things. Was his kind of music native to the house you grew up in? Well, Pete was born in 1919. I was born in 1935. And he's from the first batch of children, and I'm from the second batch of children. I didn't grow up with Pete. I wish I had, but Pete was a visitor in our house, so he would have been a teenager virtually when I was born. I remember visits from him. He, Yes, he did grow up with the same type of music as I did, but from a distance. He was first taken down to the southern mountains when he was two. My father and his wife built a little kind of a trailer, and they went down to the south to take classical music to his house. And that's when my father discovered that the Southerners had their own music. They were not well off at all. There were three boys and the wife who played classical guitar and the husband who was already partly deaf and wanted to be a conductor of orchestras but couldn't be. So Pete was aware of that music from very young. But like me, he was brought up with a classical music education. So I was brought up listening to it on records because some of the famous collections had been made by the time I was born, and Alan Lomax was still collecting, and they were donating their recordings to the Library of Congress. And my mother would bring them home and play them and put the music down on paper and put them into books for Alan Lomax and Ben Botkin. So I heard it playing all day long while she transcribed. So it gets in your bones by that point. You bet it does. You bet it does. But I've always felt close to Pete. I don't call him my half-brother. He's my brother. 
sometimes people correct me and I say, no, there was nothing half about it. And actually, Peggy, I come from what they call a blended family. I have brothers and sisters and I have half-sisters and I have three step-siblings as well. But we're all family. All 12 of us are just brothers and sisters. I like the term blended family. That's wonderful. So, Pete, did he have any formation to give you about instruments? I mean, banjo or any other instrument? Did he bring it home and say, hey, little sis, let's get to work on this? Yeah, well, we didn't live in the same house. He came down with his banjo from my earliest memories he visited. But my first instrument was the piano. My mother gave me piano lessons. Second instrument was the guitar, which I started playing at the age of 10. And at age 15 or 16, my brother Mike got shingles in his eyes and had to lie in the dark for six weeks on his back. And to give him something to do, my mother bought a banjo and had me read Pete's banjo manual to him out loud upstairs in the dark room. And that's how I started playing, too. I got interested (laughs) in it. So uh, we shared a banjo for two or three years. I'd love to know where that banjo is now. Last heard of it was in Chicago. An old S.S. Stewart with fantastic inlay up the neck. What happened to Pete's banjos and everything when he died? His main banjo went to his grandson, Tal. Like me, Pete didn't have a lot of instruments. Mike was the one who had buckets of instruments, lots and lots and lots. Uh, They were his pension. He had something like 400 instruments when he died. And they were gems, a lot of them, absolute gems. But Pete's long neck banjo went to Tao. Well, you're going to share a song that you wrote about Pete. Of course, you performed with him at various points. You two would get up on stage. And I mean, your paths crossed frequently, even if you grew up in separate households and he was already an adult. I, I assume you never rode the trains with him and Woody Guthrie. Good Lord, no. No, <laughs> no, no, no. I would have liked to. I would have done if I'd been older. You know, I was quite adventurous. But we weren't on stage much together. I went to hear his concerts, but he had such a different concert technique from me that it never would have worked. But you did write a song about him, having sat in the concerts with him, and so let's talk about It's Pete. (laughs) Well, I wrote it for his, um, I think I wrote it for his 90th. No, it wasn't his 90th. I wrote it because he and I were going to start singing together. And he's, I've always just absolutely loved him and been amazed at his ability to get everybody to sing. He could get anybody to sing, literally. He could even get Republicans to sing it when he was singing a Democratic song. <laughs> and so I wrote it with my partner, Irene Piper Scott. I wrote it with a rather lamentable tune, and she objected to the tune. And I changed the tune completely, so that's why I give her credit, because I would have had the lamentable tune still if it hadn't been for her. I recorded it with my son, Neil, and with his wife, who plays the oboe on it. And the oboe is an odd instrument, but there you are, that's what it is. (laughs) And there's a great video out on YouTube, and folks, I'll have a link to Peggy Seeger's video about her song, It's Pete, on the NordenSpiritRadio.org website. Just come and I'll link you to it, or you can search Peggy Seeger, It's Pete, on YouTube, and you'll find it as well. It's delightful. I particularly like the first two images, Mount Rushmore. Maybe we should not do a spoiler and tell them what the second image is. (laughs) 
imagery was made by a man called um, Stig Vernon here in Oxford. I guess I detected that British sense of humor going on. Well, I am British. Yes, and it shows up in the video. So, folks, you'll have a great time watching the video and listening to the song, but we're going to listen to it in just a moment. And Peggy, I'm so thankful you joined me again. I'm sorry to hear you're not touring in the U.S. anymore. You know we miss you, but I guess with YouTube, we can connect up anytime we need to. Yeah, well, if you check the website, which is www.peggyseeger.com, you'll see there's been a biography about me, and my memoir is coming out in October, and both of them are or will be available in the United States. Well, that's great. So thanks again for joining us. Keep up the wonderful music and the wonderful energy, and would you please pray for the United States? We need some kind of a miracle going on here, okay? (laughs) We do, too. I'm kind of aware of that, too. (laughs) Okay, Mark. Thanks for calling. Thanks, Peggy. So here it is. Peggy Seeger, It's Pete. Thanks again, Peggy, for joining us for Song of the Soul. Okay. A bunch of rocks sitting on a hill Doing what rocks do Sitting still On a stone nearby there's a lanky man With a long neck banjo in his hand Now normally rocks don't do a thing But one by one they begin to sing It's Pete, it's Pete Strumming his banjo, stamping his feet That lanky man comes down your street What do you know? You're singing Now down in the cemetery folks don't move They just lie there in their groove Sitting under a tree, there's a lanky man with a long neck banjo in his hand. Now, normally, dead folks don't say a thing, but ghostly voices begin to sing. It's Pete, it's Pete, strumming his banjo, stamping his feet. That lanky man comes down the street. What do you know? You're singing. There's a place nearby, not far from here, where folks can't talk and folks can't hear. Here he comes, that lanky man with a long neck banjo in his hand. Like an angel choir, like birds on the wing, all these folks begin to sing. It's Pete, it's Pete, strumming his banjo, stamping his feet. That lanky man comes down the street, what do you know? Down the street, what do you know? You're singing. 
all of us singing together about Pete Seeger. Thanks to Peggy Seeger for joining us to share It's Pete. Her site is PeggySeeger.com. A great big thank you also to Catherine Thomas for producing this three-part memorial on Pete Seeger. And we'll see you all next week for Song of the Soul. The theme music for Song of the Soul is by Chris Williamson, and it's called Song of the Soul. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and this is a Northern Spirit Radio production. You can listen to this program again, track down the list of songs included, and a whole lot more on my website, northernspiritradio.org. And I invite you to share your Song of the Soul with my listeners. Just contact me via my website. And please, join me weekly for Song of the Soul. You can be happy Let in the light It will heal you And you can feel you And sing out a song of the soul